Welcome to the Vintage Church NOLA podcast. Vintage Church is a movement of truth, love, and community. We are in our latest series called Saints, looking at the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. When we hear the word saints, we think of men and women who lived hundreds, if not thousands of years ago, completely different from us. But are we that different from them? In this series, we tackle who the church is and who we are as saints. Take a listen to this week's message. I've never met you before. My name is Dustin Turner. I serve as the lead pastor of Vintage Church. If you have a Bible, open it up to the book of Ephesians. If you're new to Scripture, that is towards the back end. That is one of Paul's letters that he wrote to an ancient church. We'll also have the words on the screen for you as well. But we are kicking off today a new series, a 13-week series through the book of Ephesians that we're calling Saints. Yes, we love our New Orleans Saints, right? Who dat? But... We're talking about the OG saints, the original saints, the saints that came some 1900 years before our New Orleans saints. And so we're going to jump in. I want to ask you to stand with me, if you would. And we're going to read verses 1 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. And I actually want you to read it out loud with me, whether you're reading it from your Bible or whether you're reading it on the screen. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us and insight. Thank you making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will." so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Amen. That is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we're going to spend the next 13 weeks talking about the saints, who we are as the saints, who the church is as the saints. The word saints literally comes from the word that means holy ones. And that's what we're going to be looking at because when Paul talks about the saints or the holy ones, what he's referring to is he's referring to the church, not a building, not a place, but a group of people. 
So we're talking about the church, we're talking about the saints, and all of that is in contrast to the way that we approach a lot of things. In our culture, maybe for the last 100 years, our culture has been trying to make us, and I would say successfully made us, into consumers. I mean, all you got to do is turn the TV on, browse the internet, listen to Spotify, not premium, right? And what are you going to get? Ads, advertisements, right? Because they want you to consume things. They want you to buy things. And, and here's the thing. There's not necessarily anything inherently wrong with consuming things. The danger comes when you become a consumer of things that you're not supposed to consume. So, it could be the most intimate of relationships, whether it's a spouse, a friend, your children. Those aren't consumer relationships. In the same way, I would make the argument that the church is not meant to be something that you and I consume. It's not meant for us to think about what can the church do for me. It's not meant to be what can I get out of the church. We're not called, we're not meant to consume the church. The church is not about us. Now, are we the church? Yes. Do we make up the church? Yes. Do we have a part to play in the church? Yes. But we should not approach the church with, what about me? What can I get out of it? So as much as the church is important to us, it's not about you, it's not about me. If it's not about us, then who is the church about? And I think that's exactly what Paul gets at in these first 14 verses. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Here's the answer to that question. What's the church about? It is our triune God. Everybody say triune. A fancy word to say God is one and yet three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. It is our triune God who created the church and added us to her. It is our triune God who created the church. We didn't create the church. The, create, the church didn't come up out of nowhere. It's our triune God who created the church and added us to her. Now, if you want to understand more about the book of Ephesians, you have to recognize, like every book of the Bible, every book of Scripture, there is context in order to understand what's going on. And so I want to show you a little bit about what I mean by that. There's a map you're going to see, as well as a link to our website. And here's what I want you to do. I want everybody to get their phone out, and I want you to type in the link on the screen that you see, because I want you to know where you can find all of these resources. You're going to see some sermon notes there. You're going to see our V group study there. You're going to see audio and video later today. But you're also going to see an introduction to the book of Ephesians. So if you're new to the book of Ephesians, if you're new to reading Scripture, 
This is a great resource for you to download. Our equipping team wrote it together, and it's got some great context to the book of Ephesians. The other thing that you're going to see at the bottom of the page is links to our two podcasts after Sunday, as well as our conversations with Vintage Women. And what we're going to do during this series is we're going to have conversations connected to and related to the book of Ephesians and our series through saints. So our Vintage Women have already posted one about what does it mean to be a saint? What does saintship or sainthood mean? look like. All of that's on that link. I want to encourage you to bookmark that link. You can find everything right there. So as we unpack the book of Ephesians, we have to understand a little bit about the context. The letter starts in verse 1 by saying what? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. We know about Paul from the book of Acts. If you go back just a few books in the New Testament, you'll find the book of Acts, and there it is about Paul. Paul was a persecutor of Christians, a persecutor of the church, ultimately a persecutor of Jesus. And Jesus changes him as he's on his way to kill more Christians. On the Damascus Road, Paul encounters Jesus, he's changed, literally turns around, begins to plant churches all over the known world, including in Ephesus. Now you're going to see on this map, there is Ephesus, that is Asia Minor, what we know today as modern day Turkey. So you can get some context as where is Rome, where's Greece. What most scholars believe is that Paul wrote this letter to the church of Ephesus while imprisoned in Rome. As we read further in Ephesus, in Ephesians, we're going to see some context clues that tell us that Paul was imprisoned. And most people believe that this was his Roman imprisonment somewhere between A.D. 60 and A.D. 62, what we read about at the very end of the book of Acts. So all of this is context for us to understand what Paul is talking about, why he is writing to the church. Remember, the main idea, it's our triune God who created the church and added us to her. So here's the question, how did God do it? And I think that's what Paul answers in these few verses. Taking notes, write this down. Number one, the Father adopted us. The Father adopted us, which means for us is that our beginning, the church's beginning, is in God. Our beginning is in God. We do not save ourselves, only He can save us. We did not start the church. He created the church. Our beginning is in God. Paul says this this way, he says, the Father blesses us with every spiritual blessing. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Everything that God wants to give us in Jesus, in the Holy Spirit that we're going to read about, Paul says God has given it to us. Later in this chapter, he says he has lavished his grace on us. He hasn't held back. He hasn't given us crumbs. He's given it to us, all of it. That's what Paul says. So it's the Father who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Number two, Paul says that the Father has chose us for holiness. Verse four, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
Whenever you see the word, and whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, choice or choose, more often than not, what the New Testament or the Old Testament is referring to is this thing called election. I'm not talking about the presidential election. I'm not talking about midterm elections. It's a theological idea, election. And when you think about election, it's this. It's God's free choice to save who he desires. Now, we could spend hours pontificating about how do we understand election and who does the choosing and what's our responsibility to play in this decision. And what I want you to understand is that at its core, I think election is a mystery. There's only so much that we're going to be able to wrap our minds around. This is what it says, God says about the people of Israel and his election of them in Deuteronomy 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Verse 7 is so important. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. Verse 8, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What Deuteronomy is getting at and what Paul's getting at in Ephesians chapter 1 is this reality. God's salvation and his church are built on grace. God's salvation and his church are built on on grace. Now grace is the favor that God gives us and his grace is generous. I already told you that. He's not withholding. He's not saying, listen, if you do this for me, I'll give you more grace. He's not saying that. His grace is generous. It's unmerited. For grace to be unmerited, what that means is there is nothing you have done or haven't done to deserve grace. He just gives it. It's generous. It's unmerited. It's non-reciprocal. God doesn't give you the grace and say, hey, listen, uh, in six months to a year, you got to pay me back for that grace. He doesn't do that. And his favor, his grace has a purpose. See, what Paul says is that God the Father has done all of these things to make us what? Holy and blameless. There's a purpose in this grace and just a chapter over in ephesians chapter 2 paul i think it gives us a great explanation of what god's grace looks like in verse 8 for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is what the gift of god it's a gift and if that's not clear enough paul then says in verse 9 it's not a result of works. There's nothing you could do to earn that grace. So why? So that no one may boast. Grace is like this. If I give you a gift and I say, listen, this is just, I just love you and I just want you to have this gift. No strings attached. It's yours. Compared to, I give you a gift and I give it to you and I say, that's yours. But you feel this obligation deep down inside at some point to pay me back. That's not grace. 
Grace is God's favor, His gift to us. No strings attached, no need to repay. He's saying, it's yours because I want you to have it. That's His grace. He chooses us in His grace. And then Paul says this, he says, the Father, He's the one who predestined us for adoption. Verse 6, He, that is the Father, predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. In the ancient world, adoption was not a new concept. In fact, the Ephesians in all of the known Roman Greco world would have, understand, would have understood adoption because they knew of Julius Caesar. Does everybody know Julius Caesar, right? One of the first Roman rulers that was kind of an emperor, but not yet officially an emperor. And so he conquered all the world and he came back through Rome and he basically kind of set himself up as the emperor and also as like a godlike figure. And then, you know, there's the Ides of March and he's killed. But before all of that happens, he adopts his nephew. And his nephew's name was Octavian. Well, we know Octavian as Augustus Caesar. Caesar. Augustus Caesar was the Caesar ruling the Roman Empire when Jesus was born. And Julius Caesar adopted his cousin or his nephew Octavian and made him his son. So when Julius Caesar died... Augustus became the emperor because that's practically what Julius Caesar was. And because Julius Caesar was a god to the Roman Empire, guess who else kind of became godlike? Augustus. So in all of that context, Paul is saying, listen, God the Father has predestined you for adoption. He's predestined you to become sons and daughters of his, and they would have understand, understood the significance of that adoption. Because the Father has an eternal Son, and his name is Jesus. And when we are adopted by the Father, we are what? In him, in Christ. I would encourage you, just go back and read this passage that we just read, and you are going to see over and over again, Paul used the language in him or in Christ. And the fancy term for that is union with Christ, but what Paul is getting at is this reality. To be in Christ is to be united with him and receive all the blessings that are his as the Son of God. So just as Augustus became emperor and became a god in the Roman Empire, we receive all of the blessings that are Jesus's in Christ, in Him, because we become sons and daughters of God. Paul said it like this in Romans 8, verse 29. For those, he, for those whom He foreknew, He being God the Father, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus, in order that, for the purpose that, He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Many brothers, many sisters, us, saints, the church. All of this is what the Father has done for us. And listen to me, this is what I want you to get. The only way there is a church is if the Father adopts sons and daughters into it. It's the only way there's a church. 
You can't buy your way in. You can't earn your way in. You can't create your own church and get into that church. There's only one church, and it's God's. And it's the Father adopting us, making us sons and daughters of Him because of Jesus that we are in the church. It's what the Father does. In every single one of these sections, it's so interesting, Paul says these things about God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, and then he ends them with this kind of language in verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. What we read about what God does, our triune God does for the church and because of the church, all of this leads us to this reality. Our praise belongs to God because of who He is and what He's done on our behalf. It's the triune God who created the church and added us to her. It is the Father who adopts us. But number two, it is the Son who redeemed us. It's the Son that redeemed us. Our forgiveness is in God. Paul says this in verse 7 and 8, the Son died for us. Look at what he says. Again, in Him. Who's Him? Jesus Christ, right? In Him, we have redemption through His blood. Blood referring to His death on the cross, His crucifixion. That leads to the forgiveness of our trespasses according, I've shared this already in verse 7, to the riches of His grace, which He did what? He lavished on us. He poured on us. He gave generously to us in all wisdom and insight. In these two verses, Paul summarizes the gospel. He summarizes the good news of Jesus. That, listen, this is what Christ did for us. Jesus, who is God, that's why he's tying Jesus to the Father and the Spirit at the end to say, listen, this God that we serve, this God that we worship, this God that we follow is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet one God. And this Son is God, and He came to earth, and He put on flesh, and He lived a perfect, sinless life. And He went to the cross, and Paul says what? He shed His blood, meaning He died. He offered Himself. And later in the book of Ephesians, we're going to see where Paul affirms His resurrection, that He rose from the grave. And the way the Scriptures talk about this is that the Gospel requires a response, that we have to turn away from the way we have been living. The people Paul was writing to, they followed Jesus because they had repented of the way they had been living. They turned in faith to trust the death and resurrection of Jesus, and then they had publicly confessed that faith through baptism, being buried with Jesus and coming up out of the water raised with Jesus. This is the gospel message, this redemption being delivered Underneath all of this, we've been talking about this in our crossover series, is this Passover imagery, right? That the lamb had to have been slain and the blood had to be posted on the doorpost so that the angel of the Lord would pass over. The people of Israel would be redeemed from slavery. That kind of imagery is behind the imagery that Paul is getting at for what the Son has done for us. I think Tim Keller describes it best like this. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, 
At the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's the good news of Jesus. That's the kind of grace that Jesus gives us through his death on the cross. Paul says not just that the Son died for us, but that the Son revealed his will to us in verse 9. He says that it was all of this making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. By the Son coming to earth and becoming Jesus, God revealed to humanity, to creation, that his plan all along was to send the Son to die for humanity, to rise for humanity, and to reign. It was only by Jesus coming that that would be fully revealed. And lastly, Paul says that the way in which the Son has redeemed us is that the Son will renew all things. Verse 10, he says all of this is as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. See, what Paul is getting at is, yes, the gospel is about the death and resurrection of Jesus, but that's only the beginning of the gospel. In order to understand the gospel fully, you have to understand what Christ is going to do. Not just what He has done, but what He is going to do. That a moment will come in the fullness of time when He returns and He conquers sin, He conquers death, He conquers Satan once and for all. All evil is extinguished and there's only good. And He rules and reigns for all of eternity. And we as sons and daughters of Him get to do what? Reign with Him. That's the Gospel. Anybody like baseball? It's America's pastime. I know there's not a lot of us. There's, you know, New Orleans is not a baseball town. I get that, right? We had the Zephyrs for that very short period, and now we have rugby. And I don't know anything about rugby. But think about baseball. You know, think about pitching in baseball. You have someone who opens a game, the, the, the starting pitcher. And typically in baseball, a starting pitcher is going to pitch, if they're doing really well, at least the first six innings. And if they're winning the game, then they'll send in a relief pitcher. And that person might pitch, you know, the seventh inning and the eighth inning. And then there's someone, if you're winning the game, who comes in in the ninth inning. What's, what's that role called? The closer. And the goal of the closer in the ninth inning is literally to get three outs as quickly as you can. Because you get those three outs, the game is over, and you have won the game. The way that Paul describes Jesus in this passage is that Jesus is our closer. He is the one in the end of time when he's going to come in, it's the ninth inning, we're winning the game, and he's going to get the three outs, he's going to defeat all the evil, all of Satan, all of his enemies, and he's going to rule and reign. That's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus has done on our behalf. The only way that there is a church is if the Son redeems us from the sin. Just as the only way that there's a church is if the Father adopts sons and daughters into His church, the only way there's a church is if the Son redeems us from our sin. And again, Paul shares all of this and he says, what should our response be? Our praise belongs to God. It's the work of our triune God 
that created the church and added us to us. The Father adopted us. The Son redeemed us. And lastly, Paul says this, the Holy Spirit sealed us. And because the Holy Spirit sealed us, our future is in God. What does this look like? Paul says, number one, the Holy Spirit confirms us. Verse 13, in Him. Who's Him, by the way? Jesus. In Him. Anytime Paul says, in Him, it's Jesus. In Him. Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. Who's Him? Who's Him? Okay, say it with confidence. Who's Him? In Him, Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Right now, if you were to go out those doors, down the hall, up the stairs to my office, you would see my, my study and you would see all of my books on my shelves. It's a glorious sight to behold. And you walk into that office and you take one of the books off the shelf and you open like the first page. On many of my books in my library, there is a seal on the first page. You know those like notary seals where they have to like stamp them and it's like permanently imprinted? On many of my books it says, from the library of Dustin J. Turner. Isn't that beautiful? It's so incredible. It's permanent. You cannot remove this seal. It is in the paper. It's permanent. And in the same way, that's what Paul is getting at when he talks about the Holy Spirit sealing us. When the Holy Spirit comes into you, when you've repented and believed and trusted in Jesus, Paul is saying this is what God does. He sends His Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit dwells in you. It is a permanent sealing. And God, by God doing that, what God is saying, just as you can go up there, those books belong to me. When the Holy Spirit seals you, God is saying, you belong to me. Paul said, this is what our God does. One of the church fathers, Irenaeus, said it like this, where the Spirit of Christ is, there the Spirit of God is. And where the Spirit of God is, there is the church and the fullness of grace. So the Holy Spirit confirms us, but number two, Paul says, the Holy Spirit guarantees us. Verse 14, he says, the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. The word that Paul uses for guarantee, another way to describe that word is a down payment. So if you buy a house and you put a down payment on that house or you go to rent an apartment and you put a deposit on that apartment, what are you saying? You're telling the person you're renting or buying from, I'm good for that money. When God put the Holy Spirit in you, God is saying, our triune God is saying, I'm good for it. The work that I've done here, I will bring to completion in the end. The salvation that I'm giving you now, I will bring it to completion in the end. Our future is in God. Now, in one sense, everything that we've been talking about, the church, us as a body, vintage church gathered in every other church all over the world, is temporary. This will not be forever. And the reason that 
this, this church is temporary, the local expression, vintage church and every other local church, it's preparing us for something greater. The local church is preparing us for the universal expression of the church in eternity. When there's no like vintage church of New Orleans and there's no church down the road and there's no church across the country, but there is one church gathered around the throne of God worshiping Him. The only way that we have that, the promise of that, is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who has sealed us and the Holy Spirit who has guaranteed us all of those things. The only way there's a church is if the Holy Spirit seals us now for the future. And again, Paul says all of these things End of verse 14 is what? To the praise of His glory. Our praise belongs to God. It is our triune God who created the church and added us to her. It is our triune God who created the church and added us to her. At the very beginning... I said, many of us, we approach the church like we approach anything else as a consumer. Where we're thinking about, what can I get out of this? Or what's in it for me? And there are no doubt seasons in life when we need more than we can give. I think we can all attest to that, amen? But rather than see the church as like a shopping mall or a buffet of options. I think the better way to see the church is like a hospital. You walk into a hospital and you have a gaping wound that is gushing blood. No one is going to tell you to go help somebody else. If they do, you should turn around and go find another hospital, right? They're going to get you a gown, they're going to find you a bed, and they're going to start helping you in that moment. But if you spend the rest of your life laying on that bed, even after you've been fixed and healed, something's wrong. The church, no doubt, is a hospital. And there should be seasons in life when we're being helped and we're being healed and we're being fixed. But I believe that part of what God does in His church because of the work of the Father, because of the work of the Son, because of the work of the Holy Spirit is He heals us for us to turn around and then be the church. Be the doctors, be the nurses, be the hands and feet of Jesus to love and care for other people. Because the church is not about you. The church isn't about me. The church isn't about us. It's about others. And hopefully after today, you recognize that the church is about God. So the question for us this week that I think all of us need to think about is, how will you make the church not about you?
you read Ephesians 1 and you read what Paul says, this is what the Father has done. This is what the Son has done. This is what the Spirit has done. And listen, He's done it to who? He's done it to us, which is incredibly good news for us. But Paul's not saying all of that stuff so we'll feel really good about ourselves. Paul is saying all that stuff so we know who the church is about. It's not about us. It's about Him. How will you make the church not about you? Here's what I believe about the church. When any local church understands and lives out the reality that it's not about her, she thrives. The moment the local church begins to turn inward and think, what can the church do for me? What can the pastors do for me? What can the leaders do for me? What am I going to get out of this church? That's the moment that that local church begins to die. And I don't know about you. On my watch, I'm not going to let this church die. And I pray to God that on your watch, you would not let this church die. Because it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Him. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you, God, that you have created your church. And the reason, Father, that we are a part of it, the reason, Jesus, we are a part of it, the reason, Holy Spirit, that we are a part of it is because you have added us to her. Help us, Father. Help us to not make the church about us. May it be about the people that you've called us to serve, that called us to love, but more importantly and most importantly, may it be about you. Help us now as we respond to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Vintage Church NOLA podcast. If you're enjoying this content, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you next week.